please pray with me as I pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy uh, that you would teach us this morning as we turn to your word what it is uh, to live by your word, the word that comes forth from your mouth. And we pray in your mercy that you would help us to understand this word and help me to teach it truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, drop something and it will fall to the ground. Jump out of a window and you will fall to the ground. She survived amazingly. Uh, the reality, the truth of gravity is something you just need to know for life. Oh, when you cross a road, you need to wait until there's no traffic. Otherwise, to live, there are just some things we need to know and practice. And in Deuteronomy 8, there is a big truth. God says we need to know all of us for life. That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now the word translated man there is Adam, the word used for humanity, male and female, back in Genesis 1. It is inclusive. Each one of us, every man and woman, girl and boy, all who are included in Adam, the human race, needs to know that we don't live by bread alone but by every word, all that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that God's word is life. You heard in Deuteronomy 8 that it particularly matters to the Lord that his people, and that's you and I as we trust the Lord Jesus, knows this, grasps this. For there we heard that the Lord went to considerable effort to teach his people this truth, to give them a habit of living by every word that comes forth from his mouth. And you also heard in the New Testament that this is the truth Jesus knew and lived by. It's these very words Jesus quoted when rejecting the devil's temptation in the wilderness to turn stone into bread to satisfy his hunger. These words he used when he, in a sense, chose to be directed not by his appetites, but by his Father's word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. But what exactly does that mean? And how and why did the Lord teach his people this life lesson? Well, in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is continuing to prepare God's people to possess and live in the land the Lord is graciously giving to them. He says to them, The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. The whole commandment, or all the commandment, actually looks back to Deuteronomy 6, where Israel had been commanded to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind and soul. That they're to do that loving by obeying his commands. And to help them live that way, Moses reminds them of the life-giving power and sufficiency of the Lord's word here. He reminds them of the lesson the Lord had deliberately taught them in their wilderness wanderings. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, 
And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, the wilderness wandering wasn't because Moses lost the map. It was deliberate. The Lord led them. Now there's something to think about just in that. The one event can be judgment for some, but the Lord's loving discipline, training of others. So for the rebellious generation, the wilderness wandering was the execution of God's judgment on them. His sentence that they would die in the wilderness and never enter the promised land. But for their children, the wilderness wandering would be their preparation to live in the land, a time of training, of learning. So the same event was judgment for rebels and life-giving discipline for his faithful people. You see, the Lord knows how to distinguish between those who trust him and those who do not even as they experience the same trial, whether it's an economic downturn or a drought or a sickness or a relationship failure. He knows how to distinguish <coughs> and to work different outcomes from that same event, to work good for those who love him. And the good purpose that the Lord was working for his people in this wilderness wandering was, verse 2, their humbling. Their humbling to teach them this all-important lesson. Now it also says in verse 2 that God was testing them to know, to reveal what's in their hearts. Our action proceeds from our hearts, our wills. And the sense here is that by their circumstances in the wilderness, God is bringing to light, showing the Israelites themselves whether or not they would trust him, trust him enough to do what he has said. Humbling and the testing that reveals go hand in hand in trying circumstances. In fact, being shown the weakness of your faith or love in testing can be part of the humbling. And the emphasis does here fall on the humbling repeated in verse 3. He humbled you. <coughs> to be humbled is to be brought low, to be brought face to face with your powerlessness, your weakness, your inability, that you don't have the resources to meet your needs, to control your outcomes. And the Lord, verse 3, says he deliberately humbled the Israelites in the wilderness through something basic to us all, our need for food. They were brought to hunger. Now, hunger is tough and inescapable. It gnaws at your guts and preoccupies your mind. Hunger has to be addressed. But what could the Israelites do in the desert? There were no shops. They were not in the one place long enough to grow their own. And besides, there was no water. To be hungry, you, your wife, your children, to be hungry and helpless is to be brought low. It's to be unable to do what you've done every day for years, to put food on your table and in your belly. That is to feel your powerlessness. And we know that, don't we? I was talking the other day <coughs> to a bloke who'd always provided for his family and now for all sorts of circumstances he could not. He could see the bills mounting up, the difficulty his family had just buying groceries and he was in distress, felt ashamed 
and powerless, humbled by circumstances. He humbled them. God made them hungry and then he fed them. Fed them in a way that was totally unfamiliar to them, totally beyond their power to control. He gave them manna, a fine flake-like thing, we're told, that was like coriander seed, white with the taste like wafers with honey. And the thing with the manna was that five days a week they could only gather enough each morning for that coming day. And on the sixth day they could gather enough for the sixth and seventh days and no more. You couldn't store up manna. You couldn't build up a reserve. Some tried in defiance of what Moses said (coughs) and that just stank and bred worms. Forty years, every morning except on the Sabbath, the Israelites were going out and collecting the manna just enough for that day. No loaf in the freezer, crackers in the cupboard or flour in the jar. Every night the cupboard was bare. Now can you imagine what that would be like? At the beginning, having to rely on something that you'd never experienced that was just weird. Oh, having no say, having to take what came day after day with no choice. You couldn't specify chock-flavoured this morning. Without a day when you didn't have to do things God's way if you wanted to eat. And how many years would it take for you not to go to bed anxious about what you would eat tomorrow? And this went on 40 years every day having to rely on God's provision, on God being faithful to his word. This was a lesson in dependence, developing a habit of dependence, complete dependence on the Lord, on his word, his promise of provision. The provision would be there, that it would be enough for the whole family, that it would be all they needed to live. And of course, The point was not just that you could rely on God for bread, for food. The lesson was bigger than that. This took place that God might make them know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. The point was that life is found in relating to the Lord by believing and doing his word, that life is found in doing things his way, even if it's unusual, not something you've experienced before, that life is found in doing things his way, even if it's anti-intuitive, because we all know life is more secure and stable if we can put a bit away, don't we? Oh, that life is found in doing things his way, even if his way is not what you feel like doing, you know, not manner again that life is found in doing things his way, even if his way is not the way you might think of doing things, where it might go against your appetites, desires and choices. That's the big lesson for all humanity. Life is found not ultimately in our secure routines, in our plans, in our hard work, in our provision, in our reliance on ourselves and our own efforts. Life is found not in following and fulfilling our desires and dreams. No, life is found in relying on God's word. 
on his faithfulness to his promise and commitments, in believing and doing what he says, in knowing his word is utterly true and reliable. And the Lord's provision was more than adequate. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. They suffered no want, no edema of protein deficiency or vitamin deficient heart failure. They got to the end of their wilderness wanderings in good conditions. What came from the mouth of God was sufficient. And Moses reminds them that this lesson, even though humbling and tough, was given in love. Verse 5, Know then in your heart that, man, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Now discipline involves both training, keeping you at the task until you've mastered it, and occasionally punishment. This is saying that like a parent, the Lord was training Israel through constant repetition. Now that's most of our discipline, isn't it? Our training of our children, the, the constant repetition of simple lessons. You know that, teaching self-control. Wait, wait till everyone's been served. Encouraging application to see that the rewards come by hard work and not by luck. Oh yes, we do have to go to training tonight. Oh yes, you do have to do your homework. Yes, again, every night, yes. Oh yes, and training people in thoughtfulness and listening. Wait until your sister's finished speaking. Or, don't interrupt, how many times have you said that? All with the goal of your child growing up to enjoy a useful and fruitful life as an adult. In the wilderness, the Lord was equipping them, disciplining, training them with great patience to enjoy the good land he was bringing them to. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley. This land is exceptional. So different from their experience in the wilderness, isn't it? Rich and varied in foodstuffs. Abundant and accessible water. Verse 9, mineral resources a land in which they will lack nothing, where, verse 10, they can eat and finally be full. But the Lord knew that living in that, that, that good land was not without risk. You see, the human heart, our heart, so perverse that we can use God's good gifts to push God away from us, that prosperity can stop us listening to the Lord the listening and doing upon which God's people's life depends, as we'll see in verse 11 following. The Lord's land could only be occupied and they would only keep living in this good land in peace in his presence if they kept his word. This whole command to love him with all their heart, soul and strength by doing this will, his will, if they, verse 6, shall keep the commands of the Lord their God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. And that's why the Lord trained them those 40 tough years in the wilderness to live by his word so that they could enjoy the fulfilment of his promise. That's why he could say in chapter 8 verse 16 that this testing and humbling was to do them good in the end because it was to give them 
their inheritance in his land. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. And that is a lesson for all of us. Life is from the Lord and found in dependent trust on the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the dependent trust that listens, believes and does the Lord's word. But as we know, in the end, this is a lesson Israel failed to practice, turning away from the Lord to worship other gods. In fact, it's a truth that's not natural for any of us because it is the truth Adam and Eve abandoned. You see, rather than being the source of life, they saw the command of God not to eat of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, as restrictive stopping them from being all that the devil said that they could be, like God. And so Adam and Eve chose to believe that the word of the Lord was not true, chose to believe that God would not do what he had said. And so they chose death, not life, by rejecting the word of the Lord, and that is the death that envelopes us all. For all our race, bar one, the Lord Jesus have also failed to rely wholly on his word when put to the test. But Jesus did rely wholly on the word of his Father, not only in the wilderness but throughout his life and supremely in going to the cross, obeying the command that he'd received from his Father to lay his life down to take it up again. You see, Jesus staked all life itself on the trustworthiness and the sufficiency of God's word, on man living by the word that comes from God's mouth. Jesus believed his father's word was all he needed to live, even in the face of death. And so Jesus himself became the word that gives life to all who trust him, the word himself and the content of the word of God that's come to us. You see, that we live by God's word alone is actually a truth that gospel calls us to embrace from the very beginning of our relationship with God, having first humbled us. The gospel is a word from God's mouth. The message, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life is given in Jesus' name, that is, on his authority, to all who will repent and believe, who will confess that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord. The starting point of the Christian life is believing we live by the word of the Lord. And that same word that gives us life first humbles us in calling us to repent and believe. You see, to repent is to say we're not God. And we are wrong to, not, to listen to the true, the creator God. Wrong not to honour him by our obedience. To Wrong not to trust his word. Oh, and to repent is to say we cannot undo the consequences of that wrong that we have done ourselves. To repent is to say that's actually right, that we are condemned to death for our rebellion and to face the judgment where we meet God's just anger at our sin. To repent is to say God is right to be angry with us. And it's to say we are needy, in need of mercy and forgiveness 
that is in God's hand alone to give and his hand cannot be forced. Oh, to repent is to say we are helpless, unable to make ourselves right with God, our creator. To repent is to be humbled. And that is where we all start when we turn to Jesus, being humbled to know we have life in the word of God alone and not in any of our own thoughts and actions, our good deeds or insights. Humbled to be exalted, forgiven, adopted as God's children, humbled like Israel to inherit, to inherit the new heaven and earth. And so as you hear that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, have you let yourself be humbled by the gospel truth, by Jesus' death and resurrection? Have you, hearing that word, confessed your neediness that only the crucified and risen Jesus can give you life by his word? Have you abandoned reliance on yourself and what you do to be right with God and trusted in that life-giving word, his gospel promise. I hope so. I hope you have humbled yourself to find life from the mouth of God. Because you have to. Life is only found there. And the Christian life is lived by continuing to be humbled and relying on God's word alone for life. You see, it is always true that the poor in spirit, the humble, those who know their spiritual poverty and neediness, who know that they're spiritual bankrupts and can't rely on themselves and their own resources, it's always true that it's the poor in spirit and only the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus calls his followers, when faced with concerns about daily needs, food and clothing, to live by God's word, to show that they have actually been humbled, to put their faith in God alone, to not trust in their own schemes, but to do his will, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting he will provide. And those who have been humbled, who have seen the bankruptcy of doing things their way and not God's way, whether it's in lying or cheating or following lust or greed or putting their own interests ahead of others. Those who have been humbled in repentance and faith can know then the freedom of having only one responsibility in all circumstances, no matter how threatening or perplexing, the responsibility to trust their Saviour and seek to live by his word, his instruction. And they also know the joy of finding him faithful. You see, we begin the Christian life relying on God's word. We live the Christian life relying on God's word and we end the Christian life relying on God's word, knowing that we live by God's word alone. We end being humbled to be exalted. It's true, isn't it? There is nothing so humbling as death. From the perspective of this world, death is complete hopelessness complete powerlessness, complete humiliation. The body that may have once exalted in its strength and beauty, lifeless and decaying. The voice that may once have commanded, silent, ignored. 
And in that humbling, where can we look for life? How can you and I die with a confident hope? Well, only if you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That the promise of God, spoken by God's Son Jesus, is sure and strong. The promise that said, whoever hears my word and believes him who said me has eternal life and won't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The promise of God spoken by God's Son Jesus, which is powerful, the word that can raise the dead. And if you're not a believer, if you haven't yet humbled yourself to believe the gospel, what will you rely on on that day? There is life in his word for you, for all who will repent and believe. But Deuteronomy 8 is given not just to bring home to us this life-giving truth that we live by the word of the Lord and so should treasure that word. It's also given to reveal the threat to our reliance on the word of God and that threat is forgetting. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today lest when you have eaten and have fallen and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. We learn what forgetting is in these verses. For the Israelites to forget the Lord is to not keep his commandments and his rules and his statutes. You forget by disobeying. To forget is to say the Lord has no claim on your life. And we see what is at the heart of forgetting in verses 12 to 14. Oh, your hard work reaps a good reward. Your plans prosper. You start to enjoy some success. And with that, a little bit of security and status. And your heart is lifted up. That is, you become proud no longer needy, no longer without resources, able to handle life's challenges on your own. You don't need any more to depend on the Lord. And so you forget the Lord. You write him out of your story. Even though you only have a story, like Israel only had a story, because of him, because of his power and care that kept them through the wilderness. And in your pride you come to say, verse 17, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Oh, you say it in your heart. No one else might hear. But this is the belief that now informs your will, your decisions, that you are self-sufficient. You are the source of your own success and security. You deserve the credit and you so only need to look to yourself and no one else and because of that, you can make your own rules and live by them. You see, forgetting is not just the odd memory lapse. Forgetting is to lose track of the relationship because you've become indifferent to it. It's to write the Lord out of your personal history. It's to cease to accommodate the way you live to his presence, to the reality of your relationship with him. Forgetting is deliberate. 
even if it may grow on you slowly. To forget the Lord is to be like the husband or wife who decides to take off their wedding ring. Forgetting is so easy for the prosperous. In fact, I think I think this is the story of Protestant Australia over the last hundred years. Made forgetful by the prosperity and peace the Lord has blessed us with. The story of many immigrant groups that have come, Christian groups that have come to Australia. Forgetting and turning our back on the faith of our forebears and putting moralism in its place because we've ceased to trust in the Lord's goodness and trust in ours. Yet forgetting is so dangerous. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. You see, when you forget, when you repudiate the relationship, you just become like all the others who do not know God and you suffer the same judgment And don't we see that all around us today as the Lord gives white Australia up to its folly, the folly of its idolatry of self. Forgetting is dangerous and the scriptures here warn us of it because it's actually a real possibility for people who sit in churches who started off, they say, by believing the gospel. See, think about your start. We all start in need, don't we? Humble to believe the word of God. Perhaps it was a crisis in your marriage or your business failing that drew you to the Lord. Perhaps you were confronted by the mess your decisions were making of your life and the lives of those you loved. Or perhaps you were just brought to know your own guilt and shame before a holy God and you feared judgment and you embraced the gospel. And then what happened? What often happens? Your life stabilises. You start to make choices informed by God's truth. And in a few years, you realise things are getting better, going better. And you start to think as you look around you, I'm here because I've made good choices. I've got this good family because I've made good choices. Oh, my good life, my hard work are trying to do what's right. They've given me this peaceful, prosperous life. I enjoy this good community because I've made good choices, especially compared to others. You know, that bloke who walked out in his marriage. That I've made good choices. And we can start to say in our hearts, we don't need a word that's for needy people. We want a word that will tell us how to do better, how to be better how to be wealthier and more prosperous and successful. In fact, we start to get irritated by a word that just keeps on speaking of our sin and forgiveness and grace and of being saved by a death. Irritated by a word that humbles us. And we forget. Forgetting can happen to us and it is deadly. So how can we keep on living by this truth, the gospel truth, that man does not live 
by, word, by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. This truth, that is the Christian life. That saves us. How can we keep living by this truth and not be forgetful? Well, Moses gave some instruction to Israel. You shall remember, when you're forgetting, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. See, Moses is just calling the Israelites to remember reality that the Lord is their God, that they are in relationship with the Lord and that by his grace they really are his people so they should listen to him. And he's reminding them of reality, that it's the Lord who gives them power to get wealth. Yes, oh, they worked hard to build those houses and bring those crops in, but their ability, their health, their opportunity, their environment, their every breath was all from him. And the good they enjoyed was from his faithfulness to his promises, not their goodness or achievement. They were blessed because he was gracious and kept his commitments. It wasn't them, it was him. And the Lord is calling us to always remember gospel reality. That if we're believers, well, Jesus is our Lord, we're not our own, we're bought by the price, we are his to live by his word. That's our identity. And he, who has all authority, is the one who both sustains us physically, is the source of all the blessing we enjoy, and he is the one who through his spirit works growth and change in us. It's he who gives us the power to live godly and upright lives, those lives of blessing. And we do not prosper and grow, continue to enjoy his peace because of our own goodness and righteousness. Now, nothing we deserve, do deserves his praise or reward. Nothing we do is perfect and fit for him. It's only because he is faithful to his promise, a merciful and forgiving God, gracious to us. We always live by his grace and generous love to sinners. We have to remember gospel reality and then make use of all the opportunities we have to be reminded of it. We should order our lives to remember. Moses suggests that to them in verse 10. Eat, be full and bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Moses prescribed thankfulness to the Israelites as they enjoyed the blessings of being the Lord's people. And that's where we should start, isn't it? Practicing thankfulness. In private, every day, when you wake up thanking the Lord that you can call on him as your father, that you're forgiven through the death of his son, that you've been adopted as his child, that you have a hope of heaven, all because you have a loving saviour. Give thanks in private. Give thanks in your family. Practice grace before or after meals or both. Acknowledge that it is his provision that keeps you and keeps you alive. Thankfulness in our gatherings, in song and prayer. We should practice thankfulness. And we should know the word that gives us life. Keep it always in the forefront of our minds. 
read it daily, whether that's in the Bible, on, in a book, or on your phone or tablet. Read it daily, whether you read it with some scheme to read it all the way through or whether you just start at the beginning of a book and work through or you, whether you read our daily bread. Read it, listen to it, meet to share it, keep it in your mind. Oh, and yes, a habit of being reminded by meeting together, using the means our Lord has given us to remember him, like next week sharing in the supper. But above all, above all, we should fight forgetting by living each day entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father who loves us enough, yes, to discipline us, humbling us in all circumstances so that we are trained to rely on his word alone. Do you believe that? In all circumstances, in your hard times that you're Heavenly Father is actually working in love to give you this life-giving lesson to train you to rely on his word of promise that he actually loves you and he's forgiven you and he will keep you. Each day living, entrusting yourself to your Heavenly Father, living where you know that only one thing matters. In plenty or want, in success or failure of your plans, in peace or turmoil, that the one thing that matters that will give you life is knowing, believing and doing the Lord's word. For not one of us lives by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that word will give you life and life forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray for your continuing grace and mercy to us, that we wouldn't be people who hear and forget. We would be people who hear and do. Grant us in your mercy always to remember that we live by your word, Help us to embrace that word, to know it, to rely on it and by the work of your spirit to live faithful to it so that we would know your faithfulness in not only seeing you meet all our needs in this life but on that last day being raised by your word. We thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.